Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome our guest, Rabbi Jonah Pesner. Rabbi Pesner is the director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism and senior vice president of the Union for Reform Judaism and a proud, I dare say, ordinee of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Jonah, it's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dean Josh Hollow. It's great to be here. Clearly, the first thing we have to talk about is for you to have an opportunity to define exactly what the Religious Action Center, or RAC, is. So the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism is the social justice and advocacy arm of the whole Reform Jewish movement. We're more than 50 years old. Our origin story is you know, quite remarkable and inspiring. May I share it? Please, please. It's a great story. There was a trustee of the Reform movement, Kivy Kaplan, who went on his honeymoon with his new bride, Emily, to Florida. And they went out one night to go to a country club. And they arrived, and there was a sign uh, that said, No Jews, No Dogs. So they turned to the black taxi driver who had taken them to this country club and in disbelief asked if this was common. They had not seen anything like it. And the driver, the African-American taxi driver, looked at them and said, they don't even bother with us. Kivy devoted much of his philanthropy in his life to civil rights and social justice. He became the president of the NAACP. He was actually the last white Jewish president of the NAACP. It was you know, an organization of white Jews partnering with people of color, right. blacks at the time, uh, or colored people at the time. It really is a kind of a, a testament to the black Jewish relationship and the commitment to civil rights in the American Jewish community. It was largely white at the time. Now it was actually much more colorful. There's somewhere between 10 and 20% of the American Jewish community is of color in some way. So things really have evolved. But uh, the other thing that Kivy did uh, when he got back from this experience was he challenged the reform movement. He bought an embassy building on DuPont Circle in our nation's capital, gave it to the reform movement, and said, you need to be at the center of civil rights and social justice in America. Wow. And that's when the center was born. Rabbi Dick Hirsch became the founding director, who went on to be the head of the reform movement in Israel and, and is a great hero of American Jewish life. And of course, active at the College Institute and the reform movement broadly. Rabbi Hirsch found himself you know, in this huge building all by himself. And he reached out to a good friend of his, a black minister named Martin, and invited Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to set up offices at the Religious Action Center. And so it was that the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, which was kind of the umbrella organization of the various civil rights groups, was housed at the Religious Action Center. And Dr. King, when he would come to town, would actually use our offices as his office. And that's why the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was drafted in part in our conference room. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was drafted in our offices. And there's a plaque attesting to that. But our legacy really was crafted and born out of the civil rights movement. And for the you know 50 years that followed, we've been part of broad-based coalitions, both in the civil rights community, the advocacy community, but also in the faith community, working across partisan lines and have been part of drafting of critical legislation like the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, 
The mobilization for Soviet Jewry was planned in our offices as well, and we have been and still are committed to nonpartisan work, reaching across the lines of uh, the political aisle, partnering with people of faith, Muslims, Christians, Jews, evangelicals, progressives, whoever will join us in interfaith coalitions to make America as just and compassionate as it possibly can be, and also to advocate for Israel, both for a safe and secure Israel, but a two-state solution and a just democratic society there. And we also work on global issues, international religious freedom, global aids, etc. That's a big agenda. (laughs) (laughs) 72 issues. I'm sure you uh, have a full plate. When you think of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, you think of a kind of Stadtlanut model or a lobbying model at the top end of the power pyramid. But I know that you bring a different sensibility in addition to that. So tell us about the two modes of approaching how to deploy power to achieve your goals. Yeah, no, I really appreciate your understanding the evolution of the RAC and where we're kind of headed. The RAC was set up under a theory of change that one could really affect policy when you were set up in Washington and could play kind of an inside game, be at the tables where legislation is crafted and through the relationships that you have on Capitol Hill and in the White House. That's put us in a very powerful position. It's a great legacy. Um, You know, Rabbi Saperstein, who was my predecessor and a beloved colleague and my mentor, spent 40 years on Capitol Hill building the relationships so that we can get in the room. And when legislation is being crafted, we have a real say in what that legislation looks like. When we want to be in partnership with the White House, the Democratic White House and Republican White House, we can be there. In fact, Rabbi Saperstein was kind of famous for having partnered with the Bush administration on uh, global AIDS, human trafficking, and international religious freedom, three areas where we found areas of shared values and shared concern. Uh, President Bush was very public about his commitments to those things, and his AIDS commitment was somewhat countercultural for his party at the time. The way it was played in the press at the time was clearly that that was a faith-based commitment. Those, all of the things that you mentioned, were faith-based commitments. That's right. So I can imagine he was friendly to. He was, and and in fact, there's this very funny story where because you know there were a lot of other issues where we had strong disagreements with the Bush White House, and so at the Hanukkah party one year when President Bush saw Rabbi Saperstein on the receiving line, he gave him a huge hug. And David's wife turned to him and said, did he know what you do? <laughs> um, but that's what David does, right? David, uh, when he was confirmed as ambassador for international religious freedom, it was by overwhelming bipartisan agreement. He had, you know, senators Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, who are, you know, obviously not in agreement with us on a lot of issues, but really believed in David and his commitment to bringing, you know, Christian conservatives, evangelicals, Catholics together with, you know, progressive Christians and Jews of, you know, Orthodox conservative reform together. So David was the master of kind of the inside Washington game. And as his mentee over the years, what I brought to the rack and to the reform movement was the other modality, I think, uh, that you were kind of alluding to, which is the local grassroots organizing approach, where David really had figured out the kind of national level federal advocacy approach. I had kind of figured out through my work with mostly Christian pastors, actually, broad-based organizing. How do you bring churches and synagogues, uh, mosques, other local institutions into relationship, build a network of real power and put pressure on local mayors, local city councils, where you could on governors and really affect change on a local level. Does the method of either community organizing or we'll call it lobbying as a shorthand, does the method you choose map onto more or less local versus 
national or are there other factors that come into play when you determine which method you're going to deploy? Well, I think what we figured out is that it really is a both and. Lobbying is just being in the legislator's office. The organizing is building the power that's behind that lobby visit. So where David, I think, really saw opportunity was to work with me to um, give us more strength and leverage, whether it's in a congressional office in Washington, a mayor's office on a local level, right. or the president. Because right? you have the voters behind Because we have the voters. Right. I mean, in essence... You do the, the work to get the vote. Exactly. And, and, and frankly, the um, you know other entities, whether it's APAC or the NRA or other you know highly successful Washington lobbies, figured this out over the last two decades. Right. The stronger they are locally on a grassroots their level, right. they so we're building reform Jewish heft. That's exactly what we're trying to do is to, you know, we've had remarkable success partly around HUC Los Angeles where we working with the reformed congregations and HUC. We have Reform California, um, which kind of piloted for us over the last five years. What would it look like if we had nearly 100 reformed Jewish congregations with their rabbis and HUC students? together building collective power in San Francisco, in LA, in San Diego, in Orange County, in Sacramento, and then putting pressure on the state legislature and on the governor to do things around racial justice, immigration reform. And we've had some real successes. Um, and that then gives us this network where we can get into congressional offices right. with hundreds of members of our congregations who then can have a federal impact. So we just, working with HUC in Cincinnati, have launched Reform Ohio, which uh, takes on even more urgency because not only do we think we can have some statewide wins for justice, but it's a much more purple state. And it means that we can really reach out to Republican and Democratic federal legislators right. and really help influence national You have policy. more gains to make in a, in a, in a less... Right. Uh, and this really, for us, really is not about partisanship. It's about figuring out how we can actually, you know, we want to do some work in Texas and Arizona and work with Republican legislators and just help Congress be its best self. So I want to push back a little bit on the nonpartisan issue, but but respectfully, I, I certainly respect that it is both a good thing and incumbent upon you to articulate very clearly that the RAC is nonpartisan and indeed to be nonpartisan. I get that. But talk it through with me a little bit, what it means to claim, and indeed to be faithful to the claim, that your goal is not partisan and your methods are happy to be nonpartisan because you're happy to get people from both parties, but that your agenda, though not pegged to a certain party, therefore literally, I suppose you could say it's nonpartisan, in fact is a progressive agenda, and progressivism is in fact associated with the Democratic Party for all intents and purposes. So teach me about that dance. No, it's a great question, and I would go kind of back a little bit upstream to, to put it in context, which is, you know, as a rabbi asked me the other day, when did, you know, Reform Judaism become so political? And I said, when Isaiah spoke truth to power, <laughs> right. um, which resonated with him. And, you know, sure. so really this started. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, this isn't about Reform Judaism. It's about Judaism. And it's about Isaiah, you know, kind of marching into the temple, which is a corrupt institution, and speaking truth to power. And it was about, you know, Amos and Micah and Hosea uh, and Zechariah and the various prophets of the Jewish people, not just speaking truth to power, but organizing power to be the kind of divine presence on earth to bring about justice for the most vulnerable populations. And it even goes, I would say, upstream before the prophets where, you know, God spoke very clearly to Moses and, and to the Israelites and said, be for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And, you know, the rabbis kind of teach us that these three categories, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, is to be for the most vulnerable. So if we believe that Judaism calls us to be for the most vulnerable, we can't abdicate our role in the public square to make sure that our society is arranged in such a way 
way that the most vulnerable populations are protected. So for us, this is about enduring Jewish values, right? And then we kind of acknowledge reasonable people can disagree about the best public policy to amplify those values. We worked with plenty of thoughtful, either ideological conservatives or Republican partisans, first of all, where we can agree on matters of public policy or where we can reasonably disagree but say, well, we have shared values. So what kind of compromises or what kind of ways that we, we can work together? And we often think about this in terms of the Talmud, right, where the minority opinion is always published and kind of, you know, elu elu, right? It's always acknowledged that though often Hillel was the rabbi whose opinion was the opinion that carried the day, Shammai's opinion was always honored and acknowledged. But as I like to joke with people, though Hillel and Shammai debated about the right way to light the Hanukkah menorah, you know, Hillel said you start with one candle and end with eight, and Shammai said, no, you start with eight and end with one, uh, and both sides were acknowledged as legitimate and both sides were printed, we don't not light the Hanukkah because there's a disagreement. So for the Reformed Jewish movement, we debate and we discuss. Uh, we have lots of members of our congregations who vote one way in elections. We have other members who vote other ways in elections. We have a commission on social action that helps us set policy. It's representative of the broad reform movement. There's hundreds of leaders who uh, participate in the developing of our resolutions. They then get circulated to our boards. And we honor the dissenting voice. But then the reform movement, based in our you know thousands-year-old Jewish tradition, both of the, the Torah, the biblical prophets, and then the rabbinic uh, literature, make a decision. And that's so at the Religious Action Center, I don't make it up. It comes out of reform movement policy that gets debated and discussed, rooted in Jewish text and tradition. We honor the dissenting voice. We publish it and print it. But then we have to advocate for the thing that we have landed on as our public policy, which goes back to uh, enduring Jewish values. That's why we really are rigorously nonpartisan, right? It isn't it isn't just lip service. It really is about being about Torah, not about being a certain platform. I don't think it's lip service in a, in the generative energy and purpose and methods. I think its effect ends up being de facto partisan because if we were to do a statistical analysis of which party adopts the methods or the legislative preferences that the rack lands on, it's going to be some tremendously preponderant leaning towards the Democratic Party. And at a cultural level, we, we all know that. We all probably prefer it that way because that's the preponderance of the reform movement. It's a preponderance of American Judaism. Am I missing something or does it? No, I think the outcome by the, you know, so if you look at the result, the result is that we tend to skew in the direction of one party much more often than the other party, which is why I think we have to be rigorous and utterly committed to that nonpartisan generative process that gets us there so that we can look at process and say it's maybe correlative, but it's not causal. Okay, fair enough. So, all right, so it's correlative, but not causal. That's and that, and that just is what it is. You know, I, I try and, and make sure that every time we get into something, to always find ways to work with Republicans and conservative wherever possible. Right. And that is important because, yeah. because you're always keeping that door open. And clearly, you're also able to go through that door in many cases that are really important. So, again, I hear what you're saying. I, I like that notion that it's correlative but not causative. And, and, and then, to, by the way, and this is where we really lean on the College Institute and the CCAR and our rabbis to really live what we say about locating ourselves in Jewish sources, Jewish text and tradition. Oh, yeah. We had your counterpart, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Cohen, who's the dean of Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, to come and teach for us for an entire morning on racial justice 
in Jewish text and tradition. So that we were saying, we're starting from our sources, we're starting from our rabbis. And he looked at some wonderful midrashim that nobody had ever seen before right, right. that really do deal with color and race and skin and discrimination. So that our commission on social action could say, well, our positions are not just kind of coming out of the progressive agenda, right. they're coming out of our enduring Jewish values. Absolutely. No, and I, and I think that the reform movement is is moved by the work of the rack. We care about it a lot. So Kolakavod, it's it's important work. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called the Teaching Podcast. Selected episodes from the bully pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to suss out a problem with you, a social problem uh, which you've weighed in on. A couple of years ago, you wrote an article in which you expressed real regret about a legitimately regrettable chapter in both Israeli and American life in close proximity to one another for completely different reasons. Prime Minister Netanyahu and Paul Ryan independently expressed concern about their opponents' voting efforts, but they did so in ethnic terms. Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke of Israeli Arab voters as if they were a kind of horde threatening him or Israel. It really was ugly for for American Jews to hear, if I may say so. Amen. And then Paul Ryan spoke of voter turnout that he was concerned about, quote-unquote, especially in urban areas, which we, any American knows, is code for African-Americans or maybe Latinos, but usually it means African-Americans. So you rightly and inspiringly took umbrage and called them to task. For that, I congratulate you, but I want to engage with the other side of the argument, as you are so committed to doing. What do we do with the fact that all of us progressives, conservatives alike, we all allow ourselves the right within moral bounds to discuss voting patterns amongst demographic and ethnic blocks. We are okay in certain contexts characterizing voting patterns along those ethnic and demographic lines. And it's positive when they favor us and it's negative when they don't favor us. But no one in principle and this was Netanyahu's counter-argument, by the way. They're, they're a voting bloc. They're a populace in Israel. And if they're my political opponents, which is no mystery, then I'm concerned about them getting to the, organizing and voting against me. And I will use my bully pulpit, no pun intended, I suppose, to... So, and, yet, and yet, for us, it crossed the line, as did Ryan's mm-hmm. comment. Help me... Yeah, I mean, the nuance. Yeah, no, I th- really appreciate the question because I think all we have to do to really think about it is just drop in the word Jew. The Jews are voting in big numbers. You've got to get out and vote. If we ever heard that, 
we would be outraged. And it goes back to Kivy Kaplan, no Jews, no dogs, right? There is a self-interest in the way we approach, think about social justice that people forget about. You know, he understood we're a religious minority. My grandma, Fanny, God bless her, she was 16 years old. She left Russia by herself, got on a boat and came to America in 1916 for a reason. Rabbi of her town was dragged to his death by being tied to a horse by his beard. She witnessed that and she got the heck out of Russia. And she came to America because she understood it was a place where religious minorities could be free. I carry that into the rack. We are about people of color. We are about the widow, the orphan, stranger. We're about the immigrant. We're about those who suffer. And we're about Jews because we know what it is to suffer. So when we see our elected officials looking at the swarming voting block as a threat, we understand it in that code where it's like the Jews, you know, be careful, the Jews, you know, they control the media. We know what the damage is to democracy that you ever characterize a group in a certain way. So do I understand why Netanyahu was concerned about a particular demographic vote? Well, sure. That doesn't mean it's acceptable. No, to but I, I, understand, I know you understand. I want to talk about the moral bounds and what's beyond and what's within them. That's what's interesting to me. When NPR discusses descriptively voting blocks. They'll say African Americans vote this way. They, they will factually declare the Jews too. They'll say older Jews in Florida are guaranteed to vote, you know, Democrat. And it's diagnostic, it's, it's, it's clinical, but it's clearly ethnic. And it's also, by the way, accurate. Mm -hmm. Why is that qualitatively different? Frankly, I don't do that. What we focus on is, it's particularly because the Voting Rights Act was written in our conference room, we are trying to get every American citizen to vote and make sure the right of every American citizen's right to vote is protected. How they vote, you know, we, we hold up our during Jewish values and the positions that flow. They then have to make their own choice about what decision in the, vote, in the voting ballot. I so, agree. I, I guess I'm not asking you in your official capacity as the executive director of the RAC. I'm asking you as a citizen who has all the concerns that we share, you and I and, and our movement. I'm asking as a person who seeks to be morally attuned, why does it bother us when someone like Ryan says what I think he it, I think it otherizes. I mean, I think it really is a dehumanizing thing, right? It's like thinking about, quote-unquote, working-class whites. You know, I look, I've spent my rabbinic career at the grassroots level listening to people, you know, whether it's, you know... In Scranton, Pennsylvania, talking to people who live there or in the you know, barrio in L.A., I just hearing their stories and what their concerns are, I understand why people look at big data and why the pundits are, you know, or strategists are all trying to figure out how elections work, though obviously the last election was proven completely wrong. So to me, again, it, it dehumanizes us to be, I'm not a block. I'm a human. I have a story. But it doesn't. I vote a certain way because I make a choice in a moment that reflects my values. When you see it on CNN, it doesn't bother anyone that they should say. In other words, yeah, I agree with you that that's what happens. But but when Ryan says it adversarially to the black community or about the black community, and when CNN says the same thing descriptively, no one's questioning the facts. Somehow it doesn't bother us. You're, I, I don't think people are offended when they, when these media outlets describe in relatively neutral terms, but clearly ethnic terms. I, I'm trying. I'm trying to to to, to, to suss out the difference. Mm -hmm. Why why one is so offensive to us and feels like an attack on. Now, I suppose one is just descriptive of a pattern versus the leveraging of a fear, right? That's why I use the Jew analogy, right? The Jews are voted, right? That triggers people fear, those people, right? Whenever we think in those categories, you know, I'm not sure it matters that much, but you're when not CNN... You're not convinced that we shouldn't be worried when CNN... Yeah, I don't love it. 
Yeah, yeah. It's not it. something I'm so comfortable with. Right, okay. It really, and it was Fair. proven wrong in this election. Well, yeah, it, there is the issue of accuracy. And the value of it, frankly. We, uh, you know, probably the most radically particularistic uh, group of people who could otherwise pass as white Aren't we the ones who would argue that it does matter, the group, the block, the commune, the, the collective? And doesn't community organizing presuppose the same thing? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, and, and the kind of, the commitment to the collective is the commitment to, like, what can we do together? What's the, the thing we can build together? So to you, the, the, the real difference is the fear-mongering, effectively, as opposed to saying, you know, Arabs overwhelmingly will not vote Likud, which was just a, a fact, you know, not shocking to anyone. But if it's a call to action to counter them... Right, by making people afraid and by using the 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 other as as, the, as Ryan did exactly with the, with the urban so. and to to this president's credit what he did incredibly well was be in communities that of people who have felt unheard and invisible right. because right. they've been characterized and amplified what they wanted to hear. Right. Now, what he has done, you and I both know, that's utterly dangerous, is do what... He does the same thing for other... Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And on steroids uh, yeah, and yeah, in right. utterly dangerous and ways. And using the force of his now office in, right. in ways that are, are terribly detrimental. Incredibly dangerous. And we've you know, spoken very, very publicly yeah. about no, it. Which brings me to my next question. You listed a daunting amount of uh, of <laughs> the real, issues we work on. real issues, really compelling, valuable, meaningful issues. Give us a sense of what your top priority, you, you, the campaign of the urgency of now is an organizing principle, but tell us what the top three Great. initiatives are underneath that principle. No, I really appreciate that, and I would invite any listeners to visit the website, Urgency of Now. It's you know, rack.org slash Urgency of Now, where we've helped people navigate these very complicated It's a great moments. website. You give all kinds of practical tools and ways to think about it to do the religious action that you stand for. Thank you, and hopefully to help people focus, right? Because as you said, you know, there's so many things. That's right. And by the way, as a side note, people often laugh and say, 72 issues, how can you be for 72 issues? It's actually really important. What that means is we're not always working on 72 issues, but we have clear policy on a range of issues so that, for example, when a city council somewhere decides to pass a resolution banning circumcision rights, uh, or circumcision, we actually have clear policy and guidelines on how you actually beat back an anti-circumcision. Right. There are a variety of issues that our movement needs us to be there for right. them. Without necessarily spending all of your, your person power. Before the election, we had already identified through a, a real discernment process by kind of engaging our leadership of our movement that racial justice was a key priority for us because of our role in this civil rights movement and a recognition that as much progress as we had made uh, with the passing of the Voting Rights Act 50 years ago in the Civil Rights Act, one in three black men go to jail in America, whereas one in 17 white men go to jail. Mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, voter disenfranchisement. When the election happened, it became clear to us that we needed to not abandon that and pivot away from it, but actually double down on it. You know, we have an administration now, a Department of Justice, that is self-described as a law and order Department of Justice. It will mean that people of color, urban folk, immigrants, obviously refugees, will be disproportionately impacted. And so the work to really do bipartisan criminal justice reform, which there really is real bipartisan agreement on this. Nobody uh, on the conservative side believes that it's a good use of taxpayer dollars to keep millions of people incarcerated, given the economic consequences of that choice. And the tide is shifting still very recently, that conservatives would be willing to engage in that with... Uh, There's a debate in the in the kind of conservative community, because there are the kind of Jeff Sessions-like law and order conservatives, uh, and some of the, frankly, older guard who passed these laws in the 80s that are now defensive about them, and you 
you have a younger brand of libertarians and conservatives that are saying this is a ludicrous waste of crazy right yeah, it doesn't it, make any it, it sense it achieves nothing in cost um, and, and that's you know, your opportunity your correct correct and and frankly because it also it is also a good example of where we need to be powerful federally but we also need to be effective locally most criminal justice happens on a local level so most of it, if it is about law enforcement on a local level uh, local prosecutors decisions that get made and most people are imprisoned in state and local facilities so this is an area where when the Jewish community which is largely white but not completely white when we show up in solidarity with communities of color and uh, and local communities we can really have a have an impact the other few areas where we're really helping our congregations and our folks focus go back to those vulnerable populations, knowing that we're going to be challenged with policies, both by the administration and by Congress, that will really threaten vulnerable populations. The question is, what can we do? So we are in the process of developing policy around becoming sanctuary congregations, something that the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Methodists have already done, which is, you know, how can local synagogues, if not provide literal sanctuary, like open their buildings, more metaphorically provide legal services to undocumented people, provide uh, financial financial support, get them into a secure network. We believe that our synagogues will join with churches to build a political will locally to help either defend the cities that have already made this decision or flip cities that are in the process. So that'll be a whole area of work. There'll be areas of work around the protection of LGBT folk which is going to be a really challenging couple of years already. We saw that transgender kids, students, our children in our schools now are not protected by the federal executive order. And so we're calling on synagogues to develop teams to get into school boards and demand that they actually protect transgender children. Was Obama's position based on an executive order or a recommendation? Or the bathrooms were recommendations? Uh, He leveraged the Department of Education's role. It was a joint order from... I have to get this right for you, but it was a, it was jointly issued by the Department of Education and I think the Department of Justice as protocols for what schools had to do. What this president did was he refined Department of Education policy to say you can make your own choice. So now it's not a mandate from the Department of Education. They have the leverage of funding, so school school districts will follow what the Department of Education does because they depend on the funding. So it wasn't jurisprudential. It was it was using funding as a. As a I, I believe, but I could I could certainly be corrected. Either way, um, agreed. We face a more challenging landscape right now under the Trump administration. Right, and it puts us in a in a particularly awkward position because we fought for and won the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, back in the 90s, which really was to defend the right of religious minorities, like for a person to wear a yarmulke in the workplace. Uh, it was a classic example of why we have to be concerned about religious minorities. The RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, has now been misused by states that want to oppress or discriminate against gay and lesbian people and use religious That's freedom, right. right? So like the idea that a representative of the state wouldn't be required to issue a marriage license because that would impact on her religious freedom. Well, she's choosing to be an agent of the state. The state doesn't discriminate against LGBT folk. So we, we want to continue to defend religious liberty, but what we think is real religious liberty, not discrimination in the name. Not, of not as an excuse to discriminate in the public sphere. Exactly. I want to thank you, Rabbi Jonah Pesner, for spending the time to talk with us at the Bully Pulpit about uh, the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, our Religious Action Center, 
really uh, an honor and a pleasure. Oh, it's mine, and I'm so grateful for the partnership. We actually work with all three campuses of Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in the United States, and we work with the faculty and the staff, and our deans are, along with uh, Jonathan Cohen and David Adelson, uh, Josh, you have been great partners with us, so we're, and we're honored to teach on your campus. Uh, we're honored to have you. That's a, that's a great partnership. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.